Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 233. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Hawkeye episode 2, Hide and Seek, a Kevin Feige production directed by Reese Thomas, written by Elisa Clement, and Jonathan Igla is the head writer for the series. Before our spoiler review begins, we want to let you know about Fan Show Plus, available at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or on Apple Podcasts. Just search for the MCU Fan Show channel, or Fan Show Plus on Apple Podcasts, and you can become a subscriber for that premium podcast, where we talk about additional MCU news, and even talk about things outside the MCU, as we will soon begin, once it starts dropping on Disney Plus, our spoiler review series for The Book of Boba Fett. So you can find that, as I said, patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. And then make sure you're following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who's already taken the time to share their thoughts. We really do appreciate it. Now, let's go, bro. How you doing, Paul Herman? I mean, I already know because we like literally just started or stopped recording the previous episode, but uh, pretending this is a different time, how's it going? Okay. Well, first of all, I was dying at the intro when you said, let's go, bro. So I literally laughed out loud. I'm glad I had myself muted because I was not prepared for that. Um, I am well. Uh, things are more settled upstairs, so I'm happy now. My my, for Those who don't know, my daughter knocked over a Christmas tree. Everything's fine. She's fine. But yeah. Things have settled finally. She's going to bed in a few minutes to say goodnight to her. She blew me a kiss. I felt very happy. And so now I can uh, talk about Hawkeye episode two, which I cannot wait to talk about, to be honest. So, yeah, I'm ready to dive in. I mean, I just uh, I can't believe that we get to do this. It's so nice to be mm -hmm. able to talk about one episode right after the other one. Although I think everybody knows, by the way, the uh, what's going on as far as, you know, the incident from episode one, because they should have already heard the episode one spoiler review. So if you didn't know what Paul was referring to there, go back and listen to our episode one spoiler review it's, for it's, Hawkeye. <laughs> you want to make sure you catch it all, right? All of our thoughts on all of these episodes. That's what we do. It's why we do it. So mm -hmm. everybody listens to everything we say. It's not at all why we do. We just like having fun. Um, but... I I was so, as I said at the end of the last episode, so happy that we got to go from one episode to the next immediately and just get that moment of, of what happens next between Kate Bishop and Clint Barton after we just saw them meet for the very first time. And appropriately enough, this episode, we're just going to get right into it. This episode picks up right where that one left off and Clint realizing that he's dealing with, from his perspective, a kid and all that really matters is they need to get somewhere safe. And even when she's kind of reliving everything that she's just seen, because I think the episode does a really good job right here where Kate Bishop, the sum total of everything she's just been through is kind of spilling out of her right now. Everything that she's went through where she's discovered a dead body, she gets into another fight with the tracksuit mafia. She almost dies in that fight, thinks that she's going to die in that fight. Then she's saved by someone. Turns out that someone is her hero, her favorite Avenger, and she's seeing him in person, in the flesh, right here and now, but then also going back and remembering the gruesome discovery that she made of that dead body from uh, of Armand III, and as she's even saying that, like, I saw a dead body, 
And Clint's response to that of like, okay, yeah, we'll talk about it when you get there, meaning get there to someplace safe, uh, I thought was really, really uh, funny. But then we uh, we cut to outside of Herman's Hardy Slice. We can forgive the fact that they don't have a second end, a uh, second end yeah. at Herman's Hardy Slice. Your name is kind of in there, uh, Paul. Um, I'll, I'll consider that an Easter egg. I feel that's that's for me. Thank I, you, thank you, staff. I, I think it's clearly a nod. I I think it clearly clearly. Is. Yeah, there, there's no question, or there could be questions, but I don't want to hear them. So uh, we're we're outside Herman's Hardy Slice because Kate lives above it, um, and she explains her background, a little bit more of her background in martial arts since she was five. And I like that she is immediately wanting to learn from Clint Barton. Like this is now, I I am meeting my hero, and I'm going to make good on this by now trying to learn as much as I can from him as quickly as I can. So as he's looking down the street, are you assessing threats? Is that what you're doing? Just wanting to confirm everything that Clint Barton is up to so she can try and learn. But also, I think, trying to impress him that she knows she's recognizing what it is exactly that he's doing. And her comment, which we saw in the trailers about being the greatest archer and him like, oh, yeah, who thinks that you? And she's like, well, yeah, she's one of the people who who has said that she is the greatest, uh, greatest archer. And uh, one of my favorite little moments in the entire episode is after they go inside the door when Clint turns back to shut it and he just bumps his head against the glass of the door, just so mm-hmm. resigned to just dealing with this mess. Like, just, ah, oh, crap. Like, all I wanted to do was spend Christmas with my family and then someone shows up in my old suit and I have to go check that out. And it turns out that it's a kid. And now I'm stuck here wanting to make sure this kid is safe, but also get my suit back. I just I can't believe all that's getting in the way of me wanting something as simple as uh, Christmas with my family. A great start to this episode. I, I can't wait to get into so many different aspects of this episode, Sean. Just I want to say that first of all, and um, I can't wait to when the fire starts. Just want to say that right now because I've got I've got I've got some juicy tidbits for y'all, um, and I don't listen to anything else for for any story. So I'm very excited about talking about a lot of this. But I think what I'm Really, I think for me, as the overall enjoyment of it as a as a fan of just Marvel and everything, it was great to see this right off the bat. I love how they kind of bled into from the free previous episode into like, you know, that whole thing of like, you know, you're a Hawkeye, you know. And what I loved about it was, again, this is a different this is where it takes a little bit of a different turn from the original comic books and uh, this different portrayal of the different characters. And I, I again, I was I was prepared for it. I wasn't prepared for the again the chemistry that Haley and Jeremy Renner have in this show, and I was just blown away at how I immediately buy into both of their you know characters and as far as how they're interacting together and how they're they're being written, I bought into it immediately, and I was very impressed how you just buy into the fact that she's just like. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, you know, try to, you know, show what she can do. And also the fact that he's just like, I want to get the hell out of here. I'll grab my suit, get out. And I just loved their interactions. And you immediately know that he's like, I did, I do not want to be here. And again, a little bit different from the, the comic book, which again, I, I like the difference here. And this is where I, I'm going to say that this, this is where the two can, can coexist. And I like the, both of them for different reasons. And I think this show does a great job of giving us this, the, this different personalities of these different characters and how and why they work together so well. And I just, I love initially how Jeremy's like, I, or Jeremy Clint is just like, I want to get out of here. 
I just want to get my suit, mm-hmm. get out. I don't care about you. I don't care. And like, it's obviously, you know, taking a 180, you know, takes a whole different uh, direction at right in a little bit, but you immediately get their, their, what makes them different as people. And that also will bind them together. And I love that whole opposites attract thing as far as even mm-hmm. as like, you know, friendships here in this way or a mentee or a mentor. It's very interesting. I love how different they are as people. Um, you know, cause I, I gotta say they're, they're obviously different in the comic books, Sean, but I, but there is some similarities. They're, they're a little bit, uh, you know, shut off from their emotions a little bit. You know, I think that's where they kind of relate to each other from the comic books. Whereas in this, they don't really have a lot in common. And I like that. And I think you see that played right off the bat and it's interesting. And so it's a really interesting like kind of depiction of these two different people hanging out together and how different they are and how weird that is. And it appears on screen and just, but yet how it works and when they're interacting together. So I, I bought it immediately. I think they have more in common than they think. And I think that's going to be part of the, the process of them bonding as characters throughout this series and perhaps future MCU stories as well in that Kate obviously cares about a lot of things, but, and I think for Clint though, he likes to pretend that he doesn't care. He likes to pretend that he's not invested in these things, but he totally is. And he cares about Kate Bishop instantly because in his mind, like this is a kid. And so because relative to him, a 22 year old is a kid. Like even when she says like, when he says, how old are you? 18. And she's at 22 and he's like, same thing. Cause to Clint, that is the same thing. It's still a kid and he does care. If he didn't, if he really didn't care, then he could just take the suit and leave her to be discovered by and ultimately killed by the tracksuit mafia. But he's doing everything to try and make sure she's okay. Do you have a safe place you can go when you get there? Are you sure you weren't, are you sure? I mean, obviously she was wrong, but are you certain you weren't followed? Are you certain they wouldn't know who you are? or how to find you, that you can actually be in the clear on this. He wants to be sure of that before he can just leave, because he can't just leave her behind to be killed. He knows that she's in danger, and he's not going to be able to uh, release himself from that sense of obligation that he feels to make sure she's okay uh, until he really knows that she's going to be okay, and unfortunately, he's not going to get to know that uh, anytime soon. So I I think that's what is interesting about that. And, and it's also, I think, part of what Kate starts needling at him later on in this episode of Clint Barton. He cares about a lot of things, but maybe he should just be more, um, he, he really should be more outwardly sincere about how much he really cares about certain things. And it's not just about playing it cool all the time um, or, or keeping things close to the vest. That it, Sometimes it is about showing how invested you are. But I think Clint's choices, his behavior, those demonstrate how invested yeah. he are, even if his attitude uh, tries to suggest otherwise, because a lot of that is just a device for him. You know, that's just you know, right. a, a mechanism, you know, a muscle that he's developed over the years. Um, but yeah, Kate, in, in so many ways, whether she means to or not, exposes the, the real sincerity that's there for uh, for Clint Barton. But then we also get a look at Pizza Dog as played expertly. Once again, a credit to his craft, Jolt, uh, amazing dog. Uh, and we see that Kate ha- Kate says that she has inherited this place. From whom, I wonder? Like, was this uh, a spot that was in the family that her dad had that she got when he passed away? It was her aunt, I thought. No, that's the other place they go. Oh, you mean, you mean, oh, I see. Yeah, the you first mean, place the that gets burned down. Place. She also ah, says she inherited ah. that, and we don't know 
whom she inherited from just yet. Maybe we'll find that out or maybe not. Maybe we're just meant to assume that it was her dad and, and that was it. Yeah, something, yeah. I don't know, you know, some sort of family property that, that she gets to live in. So anyway, uh, I, I love that her continuing to kind of fan out. And also as Hawkeye, is, as Clint is asking these questions, like, what all did you do in the suit? Oh, you know, went over, discovered the dead body, like did some light B&E. Like, I, I love her, that, like her explanation of all those things. But also her fanning out when she goes up the stairs, like the Hawkeye in my place. Uh, that was great. <laughs> And just the the back and forth, like her saying, you're kind of my favorite yes. Avenger. The fact she wants Clint to sign her bow, I thought was hilarious. Like, okay, like we can go through all this, but afterwards, like you'll you'll sign my bow, right? And then when he talks about the tracksuit mafia, that's a little on the nose, don't you think? I thought that line was great. That whole back and forth between the two of them, yeah. you talked about the chemistry. It was very apparent in just their initial interaction, but here's where it's really cemented. That back and forth to this whole discovery that, oh, the tracksuit mafia did follow her and they saw her when she dropped off Pizza Dog at her place earlier before she went and discovered Armand's body and her name is on the buzzer. So they, in fact, know who she is, uh, I, I thought was so great. And then that sets into the Molotov cocktail fight and the the shot that we got in, in the trailer, but it was cool to see it in the show where Clint catches one, like breaks the window, catches it and throws it right back at them. The fire extinguisher bit. All of that was so, so good and, and made better by them making the right choice that they leave the suit and make sure they save Pizza Dog at all costs. Yeah, this the fire thing is really, really interesting. Um, I, I love I love this whole scene. Um, I love the fact that we got, you know, how how just how deadly Hawkeye really is as, as an Avenger. I mean, yeah, he's an Avenger, but, you know, whatever. But he's he can hold his own, and I I love how immediately they're in protecting everybody, and like he just is like nope, and it's like it's still not the we get later on in the episode, it's not that it's he's in control of everything for the most part, you know. Besides the fact that like he's he had to run out, but he's he still got things under under control in some ways um, that he's just trying to you know. At least for me, I, that's the way I perceived it as, and, and how he can handle himself. So, I, I really like the fact that he did that, and it's like he doesn't need his bow and arrow, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And I like that whole thing with the tracksuit mafia, and how he threw it back at him, oh, and man. and them like just bumbling when their feet are on fire, yeah. <laughs> and even the guy saying like late, like trying to tell each other later, like that was pretty serious, like you were on fire, like I thought it was so <laughs> great, and. Kate Bishop gets a shot there too, like the one that she just shatters out of the guy's hand. Oh, that was fantastic. The arrow well, that's that goes great character building too. Yeah, right? I mean, it, yeah, her skill set was great, but then also I think we've already seen her skills throughout the first it. episode. But right now, Clint Barton is seeing that she's this, legit. That this kid, I mean, there's a lot that she doesn't know, and so she still she still needs help. I can't just leave her to her own devices. But she's not completely helpless either. Like this is someone who has the ability to uh, play an active role in defending herself, and whether he would admit it or not, he has to be impressed by that. It, yeah, and that again, great, great character building in moments right there. And I thought again, it's it's quick. It's not emphasized like a big giant moment. It's like it's pretty much told you I was great, and then it was yep. done. Like it it was not like. <laughs> like you know, right. music going on behind it. It's like, nope, there we gotta go. And I love that. And I think that to me is why this show has been working so well, Sean, is these moments are not, they're not overdone. 
it's pretty much like it, it all feels very fluid. It's very natural. And mm-hmm. I think that's been a great asset to the show. And it only makes me excited for future, you know, episodes. But like when you have character building like this moment, like I brought up the last episode um, where the, the mom and the daughter are talking, it's a very natural conversation and you get to all, it's pretty much all exposition, but it comes out so naturally and you like what you're hearing because these two great actors are going at it. Well, here you have a great moment that I think is written and it's like, bam, it's cut presented really well. And you see like everything you need to know is right there for Hawkeye and to see Kate, like establish herself as like, she's a legit, like she's a legit threat with a bow. And that's so quick. And, but we don't think about it later on because it's so quick, but you establish so much in that moment that the viewer as myself, you take in everything right there. It's just, it's really, really done. Well done, honestly, writing in my opinion. So I thought I was again, it's, it's, it's a blinking, you miss it. And it's not, people aren't going to be thinking about it too much, but you subconsciously take that in. You automatically take note of like, okay, like he's already accepted her as an archer. Like that's a legit shot. So right. I, I, I thought it was a great moment personally. Yeah. And he knows that's not luck. Right. So exactly. Yes. She said she was really good. Well, she said she was the best. He knows that. Well, I don't know that he knows anything, but she he would question that because right. Clint Barton himself is pretty damn great. So he may question whether or not she's the best, but whether or not there's any question that she's any good, that question is answered immediately for him just with that shot. And I thought that was great. And to your point, it's the writing, but that's also the direction of Reese Thomas. That's the editing mm-hmm. of not having that moment sit there and be this magical realization that she can shoot a bow. It's like, okay, she's good. That's useful. On off we go. Like that's kind of it. Cause that's the way Clint Barton is going to process information. Cause they are in the midst of this fire and having to get out alive and, and of course take the dog with them. So I thought that sequence was really, really great. That furthers the, you know, furthers our own impression of Kate Bishop and, and how capable she is, but also really uh, establishes that for Clint Barton in that sequence. And then it's time for a supply run. And I love that Kate Bishop is thinking Avengers supplies, superhero supplies, and it's Neosporin and rubbing alcohol which really reminded me of that scene of Natasha and Yelena in Black Widow, where it's the scene where, of course, Yelena initially calls out Natasha for her posing. But when she's talking about the different Avengers and how Thor probably doesn't need an ibuprofen after a fight, but Natasha totally does after the fight they just had with each other, as well as escaping from the uh, the other Widows and Taskmaster and everything that they were doing. So I, I thought it was... I don't know that that was necessarily the intent behind it, but I found it interesting to kind of have that parallel because, of course, we know Clint and Natasha, the two non-superpowered and don't have basically superpowered armor like Iron Man, the non-superpowered, for lack of a better word, more normal Avengers as far as their abilities. They're both extraordinarily skilled and talented, but not quite on the same level as their superpowered buddies or tech-powered buddies. And so to have them and and all the experiences that they went through together, and of course, them being together at the end for Natasha on Vormir and Avengers Endgame, that they both get that kind of scene in their first solo project, that Natasha gets this, of course, in the Black Widow movie. Clint Barton gets this fairly early on, early in episode two of his own Disney Plus series. I found that very fitting, whether that was meant to be a connection or not. And then Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, her reaction when she's talking about where they can go and if Clint's got a place like can 
Avengers Tower and Clint saying that Tony sold it a few years ago and her reaction to that saying it's so sad on that's sad on so many levels. It's true. And I like that she called it out because it's still, I think, kind of sad for us. It might be happy if it turns out that building becomes the Baxter building in the MCU or some of the other things that maybe we've speculated about. It would be very sad if it becomes Oscorp, but if it becomes the Baxter building, that's something that's more hopeful. But for right now, the idea of Avengers Tower not being there and Tony has sold it and Tony is gone, so he can't buy it back. It is sad on so many levels. So Kate Bishop was very, very right about that. And I appreciated her calling it out in this scene. This is really I love this episode a lot and I I love this more than the first episode, but it's for a lot of different reasons, and we and haven't got quite there yet, but this is basically setting up the idea that, again, kind of like what we got in the first episode, these these big events, there's repercussions, there's 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 fallout from them, and there is legitimately, legitimacy, oh my gosh, legitimate uh, problems from these normal people that we have as heroes or, or just whatever, that this is, not everyone is is built like the Hulk or not everyone can be like Doctor Strange and heal himself or, or whatever, right? And I think this, if anything, this series is is there more about the mortality of superheroes than anything and how, why there needs to be a, a passing of the torch. And we're getting that, we got that a little bit, I think, in the first episode, but obviously this whole this whole episode is all about that, and it sets up with the idea again. Again, I, lo- I think this episode's beautifully written, and I'm going to say that throughout the whole entire episode for a lot of different reasons. But this one, I, there's again little things like this. You're setting up the fact that you know it's played for humor. The fact that she's you know, oh, what are we getting here? And he's like, he's getting everyday stuff to heal their wounds or whatever. And what's really cool about that is you're adding the fact that there is mortality. There is a you know, Hawkeye is not the superhero can, you know, he can vastly heal. He's a normal mm-hmm. person. And you're, you're getting all those things and you're setting up the other thing we're going to get here in a second, which I can't wait to talk about. But you're, it's again, you're getting these little cues that, and also, you're also telling the audience that Kate's learning this as well. That, yeah, Kate's been lucky, like we talked about, right? Like, it, you know, the the shot she did with in the previous scene with a with a bow, that was luck. That was luck. That's skill. But her surviving the tracksuit mafia and not getting hurt as bad, um, and not getting you know seriously hurt or killed is a little bit luck. And because of that, you know, we're getting the idea that these people are, you know, she is a more you know mortal person. She's not Thor. She's not going to heal herself or whatever. And I think that's really important establishing the fact that like this mentor is like, no, no, I'm getting the this, this bare essentials for like right. healing people, you know, everything. So they have to I do all the, the mundane stuff and not just putting a bandaid on it, but you got to clean it because it'll get infected. It, like all exactly, the basic right. first aid that, you know, we would annoyingly put ourselves through if we you know, got a paper cut or something like that. This is what they have to do. At best case scenario, really, I mean, best case scenario for them is they have injuries that they can treat themselves because it's highly unlikely that as just mortal, non-superpowered human beings who aren't in super technologically advanced iron suits, that they're going to walk away from any fight completely unscathed. So this being kind of the the chores you have to do after the big superhero fight mm-hmm. is cleaning your wounds, I thought was really, it was really funny, but also very, very, very true and just kind of adds to I think the the experience and also just the sacrifice of what they're making that that this really hurts for them and even mm-hmm. in even in fights that you might ordinarily call relatively speaking anyway you would call it successful because they survived uh, that that still 
that, that still entails a lot for them and, and perhaps more for them than, than somebody else. Because going back to what Elena pointed mm-hmm. out in Black Widow, Thor doesn't have to take an ibuprofen after a fight. Or maybe sometimes he does, but not with other humans. Yeah, exactly. No, I what it sets up later on, which I can't wait to talk about, I think well, I'll, I'll dive a little deeper into that. So, yeah, I, I did like this little tease of kind of, you know, your precursor to you know, set up the next part. Right. And so there is a safe house that Kate Bishop has in mind because as she's talking about being talked about like a bag of money. Well, this bag of money knows where there's a safe house. It is an apartment belonging to Moira Brandon, whom Kate Bishop refers to as her aunt, but then doesn't tell her mom later that she's at her aunt's place, says it's at a friend's place. So what is the relationship between mm. Kate Bishop and Moira Brandon? I do not know, although maybe it's an aunt on his on her dad's side, maybe. Anyway, so uh, Moira Brandon was a name. Like, what is that supposed to mean? And admittedly, I looked this up. And Moira Brandon, actually, it's her Palace Verde's estate that became the Avengers compound for the West Coast Avengers, Wow. And they were actually kind of true to her in a lot of ways. I don't remember that name from West Coast Avengers. I'll be totally honest. I only got this because nope. I looked up because I thought the name I figured the name was an Easter egg. I, I was wanted to see what it was. And she was an actress. And that's what they have here. Like you see movie posters with her name on it in the apartment. So credit to the writers director, the production design team, they really went all out. And even her, with costume design, even her fashion uh, fashion sense, because she was supposed to be kind of a cheesy, melodramatic actress and had a wardrobe to fit. And that's what they gave Kate Bishop as she was borrowing her aunt's wardrobe. I also love as, uh, I, I'm presuming the writing team, whether this is head writer, Jonathan Igla, or Elisa Clement, the writer of this episode, there are definitely some fans of 90s comedy in this series because we talked about the casting of Simon Callow as Armand III. Not that his role in Ace Ventura when nature calls is what got him this spot in Hawkeye, but I don't think it hurt. And there's another 90s bit that, well, that wasn't was a bit, that's an actor. But there's a 90s bit that they borrow here to get into the building when Kate Bishop does the Wayne's World or noon drink bit with the uh, fa- <laughs> with the fast food order in order to say that, they, you know, she has a pizza there to get in the building, uh, I thought was really, really great. And I have to feel like that is a, a Wayne's World homage, or at least I'm going to take it that way until somebody tells me otherwise. And uh, I, I thought it was great that we refer to Kate's aunt being in uh, Florida for the winter, whatever, just gives them uh, a safe place to stay that nobody would expect. And I do wonder if this... Moira Brandon identity is going to be purely Easter egg, which it totally could be. Um, or maybe we'll find out there is more significance to that relationship. And if we actually have a legendary actress come in as Moira Brandon at some point in the series, I would flip. Yeah, I, I, I know, I know me some Avengers West coast, but I didn't know, I don't know the, or remember the exact details of that character. So that's a, that's a good, that's a very, again, I love that. I, lo- I like that idea of tying things together they could have I, left I, it I, as the name on the buzzer. They didn't have to actually decorate her apartment and give wardrobe to make it match what her profession was in the comics. Like that's that's another level of commitment. You know, it, they could bring her in and use her for uh, again, maybe the Young Avengers champions, whatever the young team will need some kind of sponsoring. Maybe she'll play a part in that. And now that she's related to Kate Bishop. That could, you know, make sense. So, yeah, I mean, she's not a significant it, it, character in the comic book, so it's not like they need it. And when I say I would flip, it wouldn't be because, oh, I've always wanted to see Moira Brandon in a series. I didn't even really register the name until I looked it up. So it's not about that. It's just right. more of if this 
suddenly becomes a, a bigger deal thing than it ever has any business of being based on the comic books, that's the part that I would find so amusing and flip for. Yes, exactly, exactly. So uh, then we have the search for the suit. So Clint, after believing that uh, Kate will be safe there at Moira Brandon's apartment, uh, doubles back to Kate's apartment in the burned wreckage to try and find the Ronin suit, but it has been usurped by a LARPer. I love the music here again. Very playful, very heisty sort of vibe like we saw with Kate Bishop's intro, present day intro in the first episode, just overall digging the music in the series. And we cut back to the safe house, and we have to wonder, even though the relationship is strained between Eleanor and Kate, it's still basic parenting 101 that a mom would want to know that her kid was okay after everything they went through at the charity auction, and then Kate's apartment having been on fire. Not that mom is fully aware of the, the full scope of that just yet, but I, I like that you know we get that little check-in call, although I would say mom lets her off the phone a little too easy, but maybe that's just another sign of their relationship not right. being yeah. what it should be. I think a mom would have a lot more questions. I'm like, oh, I got to go by. Like, wait a minute. We almost died. Like, I think we could chat about this for five minutes. Um, but anyway... Uh, I like when she's asking about Clint and like how he's feeling and him talking about how a little girl in a ninja costume stole his Christmas. Uh, I thought was amazing. Kate icing her head with a frozen pizza before it's inevitably going to go to Pizza Dog. And I like how she says like that's not uh, it's more a title of nobility for Pizza Dog because he doesn't really have a name, at least at this point. And uh, Kate has bandaged herself up all wrong. And Clint fixes that, like teaching her these survival skills. And he's also just kind of being a dad. Like, I told you to clean your cut. Mm -hmm. You're doing it all wrong. Now I got to do it for you. And this is a role that he is very familiar with. And whether he likes to act like it or not, he's comfortable in this space. He is totally comfortable being the dad or being the mentor and helping someone out. I mean, he, of course, is a dad to his own kids. He was a father or at least older brother mentor figure to Wanda Maximoff in the MCU and now he finds himself with Kate Bishop, who needs help right now in this situation, in over her head and doesn't even know how to clean her cuts when she inevitably gets them. Uh, I thought was all of that stuff and, you know, the dynamic between these two characters. And, you know, for Kate Bishop, it has to mean a lot to see that her hero, whom she who's been her hero since he originally saved her life and he had no idea who she was or even would have even seen her standing there necessarily that this is the person who now, whether he wants to act like it or not, genuinely cares about her. Yeah, there's there's a lot of great stuff in this. And one, I'm not sure if we are going to circle back to this, but I'll, I'll bring it up now. And I forgive me, Sean. But uh, the, the scene when they're walking back to, I forget which house it was, too. But when they're talking, and by the way, one of my favorite lines in the series is, you know, puny tourist. Oh, my God. I literally died. <laughs> oh, like I, I seriously was rolling on the floor. I'm like, that's ah, probably the best line I ever heard ever. Um, and I, I tweeted that out. Uh, and I wasn't just saying that. I meant that. You know, I love the show. I freaking love that line. I thought it was amazing. Uh, one of the things I really liked to get about, and I was alluding to previously with the whole idea of, you know, buying all the Neil Sporn and just, you know, the basic stuff and bringing that whole mortality, you know, human, uh, humanistic uh, idea is when you know she's talking and you, you establish the fact that he's got the hearing aid again and you kind of you know that's a new thing for us we have right. you know it's been some time and they established the hearing aid I want to bring that up again because I loved it, even though I, I liked I loved where they were going with it because it brings in the idea that you know Hawkeye again is not immortal and it also shows all the different things that he's a part of that why he'd have less hearing and I'm like man right. if if he only has less hearing after all that. 
that's uh he may be a superhero after all yeah so much I has mean, happened that he can't even assign it to any one specific incident like he even says like oh, it's hard to tell and i love how they progressively like it's not the only highlight reel they could have chosen but it was the perfect right. highlight reel especially when they end it with the massive explosion at avengers compound was the perfect right. exclamation mark at the end of that very quick montage of all these places uh, and all these incidents that would have contributed to the uh, mm. the hearing damage that uh, Hawkeye suffered. And so what I love about it is, again, I love the writing of this episode. They've done so much of, of building up with all this. And I love that, again, you're emphasizing the idea that he's, he, he needs to pass his manshole on. He's not going to be able, he can't do this forever. You know, this is just, just the start of him, you know, as unfortunately as we get older and I, as I approach my a very big milestone birthday in a few weeks uh, next, you know, not this month, but the, or not in December, but in January, it's, you know, you have, you know, things that happen. You don't have, you're not as quick. You're not as, you know, whatever. And Hawkeye as a superhero and being able to do all the things he, he does, there is that sense of, you know, a ticking, a ticking clock for him. And this is just an, an example of showing us as the audience that, you know, this guy is going to have to, you know, give it up at some point. This is just the start of it. And I love the idea that you're given that, you know, human, uh, human aspect of the character that we can relate to. And we're seeing that and why he need to move on. And, and also for, you know, again, where, how does this tie in? Cause in the comic books, he's not deaf or anything, which again, I, I like the idea of being able to have a relatable, you know, aspect to hit the character, you know, also foreshadowing the very end too, which we'll get to that in a second for a lot of different reasons. Um, which I thought was interesting. I'm like, man, that's very interesting. You're giving a tie into another character. Okay. What does that mean exactly? So lots of great things in the scene that I'm like, man, they're, they're giving me a lot to chew on here. So I loved it. I love the scene for a lot of different reasons. And it is, it is a lot of setup. Again, it's done in a very fun way, but you're set up a lot of other things. And again, I'm not sure if it's just a kind of a nod for what's going to foreshadowing for a, a certain character to come into play eventually. I don't know, but I love, love this scene. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. I mean, the the scene where we where they talk about which we will get to to talk about in full, because there's a big conversation that happens between Kate Bishop and Clint Barton uh, that goes along with when we see, you know, Clint Barton talking about and trying to remember exactly where his hearing impairment came from. But mm -hmm. um, even in this uh, this sequence where Clint Barton, after having the initial, not initial, but that conversation with Kate, showing her how to bandage uh, her wound properly, that deep scratch that's right there on her forehead, then he goes back to searching. He saw, on because of a sticker on one of the fire trucks, the New York City uh, LARP live-action role-play, and then he sees this guy Grills, who on his stories or whatever is got the suit and is advertising that he's got the suit and talking about ninja style, which I thought was hilarious. And a great moment between Clint Barton and uh, Pizza Dog, telling Pizza Dog that he's a good dog. So that's all Pizza Dog really cares about and wants to hear. And then we jump to the peninsula, the hotel where the Bartons were staying. And Clint is sending the kids home, but he is not coming with because he has business to finish here in New York now. Uh, Cooper, as played by Ben Sakamoto, is put in charge, but really it's Lila, Ava Russo. So Clint will say that Cooper's in charge, but really it's Lila. He should just say that Lila is in charge because she totally is. And Ava Russo, once again, as she was in episode one, really good. And I like that she's picking up on the trouble. Granted, the signs should be uh, obvious there with Clint having the cuts on his head. But uh, Cooper and Nate seem relatively unbothered by it. But Ava is genuinely concerned 
uh, but is not just concerned for her father's immediate safety, also wants to make sure that she puts in there the holiday movie guilt trip of making sure that Clint Barton knows Mm -hmm. he needs to be home for Christmas because it's a holiday story and we need this. There has to be pressure to get home for Christmas. And it's not just coming from Ava Russo, I think, or Lila. This is Clint also putting this on himself because he's never really had a lot of opportunities to be part of these types of family events, I'll bet. And now he just really wants to to be there. Um, And also talking about, uh, you know, Clint being hearing impaired. It's very touching that uh, that he and Nate communicate. Nate is played by the young Cade Woodward, that they communicate via sign language. I, I thought was really, really sweet, especially since it was Nate who kind of initiated that. And we don't get as much information on it. Like, we don't know, is this something Nate wanted to learn in anticipation of wanting to have a way to communicate with his dad if his dad continues to lose his hearing? I don't know. But that moment between uh, father and son, I thought was very, very sweet. And... Uh, we cut back to the safe house. Kate needs to go to work and see her mom at Bishop Security, and Clint is going to follow the LARP lead. And I like how uh, when Clint is trying to talk her out of going and say, and she's just talking about, well, she needs to go, and Clint's like, you're just not going to listen to me, are you? Like, I want to, but no. Uh, I thought it was great. And then <laughs> also telling Kate that she has to change. Like, I'll see what else she has. So once again, Aunt uh, Moira Brandon with those uh, melodramatic actor wardrobe choices. Um, and we get that. Uh, so that's when we get the conversation as they're walking. Right. Clint's going to uh, follow his lead. They're walking toward Bishop security. And uh, that's where we get the the montage about Clint uh, and where he lost his hearing. And it's too hard to tell. Uh, but it does catch up with the comic books like this element of, of, of Hawkeye losing his hearing. That's part of the comic books a- as well. And so I'm, I'm, and it's something that I think fans have wanted to see be part of and factored into the MCU for a long time. And they got right into it from the very first episode. And what the the highlight for me, besides like all the cosplayers in Times Square, she's like, oh yeah, that's you. No, that's Katniss Everdeen that is there with all the Marvel cosplayers posing for <laughs> pictures with everybody. I thought was really great. And Kate's talking about how Clint has a branding problem. And it it seems like the type of thing that could just be a joke, like to just make fun of mm-hmm. Hawkeye and say, nobody knows who you are or... You're my favorite Avenger, but you're no one else's favorite Avenger, except maybe your kids. You're their favorite Avenger, or maybe like two out of the three kids. You're their favorite Avenger. That really could have been it. But I like that Kate Bishop. I really liked that Kate Bishop had a much bigger point that she was making. And this became a much bigger conversation. And the way Kate was talking about just the way Clint Barton is kind of the, the cool customer, right? Like nothing really seems to bother him. He's very level, very even keeled. But uh, then she says, you know, people don't want the cynical, cool thing anymore. They want sincerity, not self-seriousness, but heart on your sleeve, sincerity. And I love that on multiple levels. I love that for this story and these characters, especially with her referring to Clint, but even on a, a level that's a little more admittedly meta and maybe not necessarily intended. But to start with what's clearly there with what she's saying about Clint Barton I think she's picked up on who Clint is to some extent. It, it, she has clocked the fact that this guy acts like he's dismissive toward me. He acts like I'm just a kid. I'm just a pain in the butt that I'm here and I'm the bag of money that he has to stash or, or whatever. I think she's already picked up on the fact that this is a genuinely good guy who genuinely cares about her and, mm-hmm. you know, and genuinely cares about people in general. 
that he's not just this aloof guy. He's not the cynical, cool guy, the anti-hero, the whatever. He is, deep down, he is very sincere, and she kind of makes that point of, like, wearing your heart on your sleeve. It's a little tougher to do when you have it buried under all these layers of armor that somebody like Clint Barton has to wear, but also, you know, emotionally, it's kind of buried because he, he's not really... He doesn't really wear his heart on his sleeve as much as he might like to think he does, but he does feel those things internally, and it's really more about letting that out. It's more about showing that, and that's what she is seeing in him already, and you know, she, it's almost as if she wishes the rest of the world could see it, but that'll only happen if he actually lets the world see that. And I, I mentioned how there's ways where this kind of goes beyond this series and this character of Clint Barton, I feel like this is a philosophical conversation that the MCU is almost having with slash about itself because so much of superhero media was kind of taking the turn of the cynical, cool antihero who didn't really care that much. But the MCU has shown us the way audiences respond to heroes who are very sincere, who are what used to be called cheesy or corny, that people can really embrace that as long as they feel like it's true to those characters and it's true to how they're feeling and thinking in the moment and the actions that we see them having, their behavior in these movies, series, or stories, that it, it's a reflect, that it reflects who they claim to be or what they, the ideals they, they claim to represent. And it's all through their action and letting their emotions out. And I mean, the MCU has even had its own journey with that. I mean, literally starting with the the most sarcastic, the snarkiest hero that they got in Tony Stark. And really his own journey is about being more open and honest with himself and others about how he really feels and how much he really cares. And the way the audience's relationship transitioned to really liking the cool guy, Tony Stark, to following him with his own sincere journey, but then also liking the immediately sincere characters like Steve Rogers, Captain America, where it wasn't about cynicism at all. It was about embracing who this guy mm -hmm. is because he was willing to do it right from the jump. So I, I don't know that that's really what they were going for on as they were writing this and, and, and making this, but it worked on all those levels for me. And I just, I really loved it. No, I, I think you, you touched on something here that I've been saying a lot too, is that there's a lot of things that they're, they're, they're giving you little bits of that you can read into that are definitely what, what you're, what me and you have, have touched on different things that they're, 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 you're almost, they're, they're anticipating that those things coming back up later in the series, Sean. And that's what it feels like. And you're touching on all those things that I think they've done a great job of, of putting those under different layers and that you subconsciously are taking those in and you're accepting it into the movie or the show, excuse me. And I love that. And that's why I've been really just loving what they're giving us in the series so far is that there's so much of that stuff we've already pointed out, right? That there's so much layers to this series that I'm really loving that like we're getting from this, uh, these random different parts that you can read that those things into that pretty, I think I would say easily like you did a great job of, but they're there. I think the subtext is there and I think it's meant to be there. So I definitely feel that you're onto something with that 100%. And I want to also uh, say, I, I, I apologize for, uh, I do remember now that in, I, I'm not sure if it predated the Hawkeye series, but you're right. He did have a hearing loss. I remember that now a little bit more as I thought about it. It's been a while. I totally forgot that he was, they, they, they put up the idea that he was deaf. I totally forgot in the comic books. So Again, I've always he's never been deaf as far as I had hearing problems when I when I read before, but I totally forgot that he did they did introduce that aspect in that series. But um 
But yeah, I, I love the subtext they give us in the series. It's really, 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 really well done. And I think it, it's 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 a definitely a feather in their cap for giving us, I think, a lot of context of what's going to happen in the future. I think so. And I broke up the conversation in two different parts because there's an, another piece of this that I feel like it deserves its own attention. Yeah. And, and it totally carries on from as obviously part of the same conversation they were having. But when Clint, his defense against all of this is Kate Bishop is making these points. He's saying, well, I'm not really trying to sell anything. And she hits home by saying, but you do anyway. And that's a really interesting point from Kate because the world sees Hawkeye one way or another. And there are people who like him, like the folks at the restaurant who picked up his tab in the first episode, but maybe not everybody is necessarily embracing that. And it's not so much about you need to sell something for your benefit. It's you sell something no matter what. So sell something that benefits others. And, you know, because his his lack of superpowers, that might limit how many people see him as their favorite Avenger. But inside this story for Clint Barton, I mean, the world hasn't really seen what he has to offer in so many ways because he hasn't really cared about showing the world who he really is. Now, there's this whole other side that if the world found out about Ronan, maybe they would feel differently. But if we're going with what Natasha was saying of not judging people by the worst thing necessarily that they've ever done, for Clint Barton to be able to show the world who he is, and in so many ways, you know, masking himself, not his face, although he did when he was Ronan, but emotionally masking himself. There is safety in that because being very private, being close to the vest is what allowed him to have a family that was off the grid that people wouldn't know about and then therefore try to attack in order to try and hurt him. So there is a valid reason for him to have it. At the same time, there would have to be a balance with what the world sees from him because he's missing the chance to sell, as Kate points out. Like, what would I be selling? And Kate says, inspiration. There's value in that for Clint, but more importantly, there's value in that for everyone who might look at Clint Barton and be inspired. And in so many ways, he has the ability to inspire people in ways that Steve Rogers as a super soldier, Thor as a god, and even Tony Stark, who might have been a mortal man, but still a genius billionaire, a billionaire playboy philanthropist, they might, the audience, or not the audience, well, the audience that watches the Avengers and is saved by the Avengers has a chance to maybe see more of themselves and be and be inspired on a different level with someone like Clint Barton compared to the others. So he doesn't just have to be Kate Bishop's favorite Avenger. He could be a lot of people's favorite Avenger. And that's not about it being a good thing for Clint Barton. That would be a bonus. Really, it would be a good thing for everybody else who might see him and be inspired by him. So I, I love that that was a, a, a piece, you know, a point that Kate Bishop was trying to get through to Clint Barton. And not that she won the argument and in and, and that discussion and totally turned him right then and there. But when we look at the arc that Clint Barton is going to be on throughout this series and where he will be at the end of this series, as opposed to the beginning, this will be one of the most pivotal moments that got him there. 100%. So uh, then it turns to Clint saying, uh, well, despite all the all the wonderful things you just said uh, about the idea of selling inspiration, uh, Clint says this will be goodbye if all goes well. And you see Haley Steinfeld playing this so well, her heart breaks a little bit. And you see it right there on her face that like, oh, my hero's trying to say goodbye. But 
she's not giving up. Just like she doesn't give up in a fight, she's not giving up on this idea of having a friendship with her hero because uh, she gets his number for emergencies only, but then is very quick to say, call you later. And he's like, no, but that was awesome. She's she's going to make that friendship happen, whether Clint Barton wants it or not. But that's because Clint Barton really needs it. And uh, we go to Bishop Security. Kate takes her coat off and reveals her David S. Pumpkin suit, although it doesn't really have jack-o'-lanterns on it. But the orange and black definitely had me thinking David Pumpkins uh, in uh, with the suit that she was wearing, which belonged to, of course, Moira Brandon. So Kate wants to talk to Mom, but Jack is there. And he's all read up on being a stepdad. I cracked up when he said I got a book about being a stepdad. That was amazing. Uh, agreed. And his whole bit about she both desires my approval and yet, you know, like I, you know, <sighs> threatened by me or, you know, she feels displaced by me. His whole like dime store cycle announced because he read a book about being a stepdad. I just I loved and, and Tony Dalton. So good uh, playing that mm-hmm. as, uh, as Jack Duquesne. Just so, so good. They agree to have dinner that night. As I mentioned before, when Kate says the suit belonged to a friend, she doesn't talk about Aunt Moira. She doesn't talk about any of that. So I do wonder what the nature of that relationship is or if it will even be explored. But the highlight of the scene for me was Jack just being so smug. And it had me questioning, what's this for right now? Like, Jack, he has to know he's getting under her skin. But to what end? Like, is that for Kate's benefit um, or is it because he's trying to get something out of Kate or get something out of Eleanor, or is this just who Jack is? And I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I really like this scene a lot because I, I, at one point I'm thinking like, oh, they're playing up this guy to be, you know, whatever. Right. But the way the actor is portraying it, it's almost like it's a play on a play. Right. Like you, you kind of t- touched on that a little bit recently. Like he's playing, is he really in love with his, with her mom or is he playing, you know, is he playing on, is a whole thing an act? And then this is an act on top of the act, right? That's what it felt like to me. Right. And it was really cool to kind of see that on top of each other. Um, and so, but the way he portrays it, it's like, it is, and it is it, I, I can't even explain it. I thought it was so well portrayed, and the way he, the way the actor, he's amazing. I thought he did a great job because I immediately, I immediately thought you could go either way. If you're, if you're, if you're Kate Bishop, you could literally go. He's being sincere, or he's playing on top of a. It's just, it, it's great. It's a great, great performance right there, which then sets up. Again, when I think back to it, which it sets up eventually, which again the show's done a great job of setting things up. I, I get really excited. So I'll say that. I love I love the scene. His interaction was great. I agree. I laughed out loud when he said he read a book. Yeah, that was amazing. Like it knowing he has to know full well that like that's only going to aggravate Kate even more that exactly. I know how to talk to you and I know what you need because I read a book and I just called you out for everything you're doing and psychoanalyzed you in front of your mom. And and not only that, I'm, I'm treating my opinion because I read a book as expert advice for your mom to be aware of what's happening with you right now. So it was uh, it was a very, very a-hole move and yet uh, delivered so well. Good job, Tony Dalton. So uh, now it's time for live action role play where they don't allow looky loos, only participants. So that means Clint's got a role play and Clint playing in this uh, live action role play is amazing. It's an Avenger versus a bunch of amateurs. And the best part is he actually enjoys it. 
Great job by Jeremy Renner to have these little smiles that happen in these little fights or whatever that he's having fun. He doesn't want to admit it until like the very end, but he he's having a very good time doing this. And also credit to all the actors who were playing LARPers in this battle. They were fantastic. They really sell the drama for live action role play. When they get hit and they die, their deaths are extraordinary. Very, very well done. The melodrama was certainly enjoyed by me. And then uh, Clint finds the guy with his suit uh, named by the name of Grills. And Grills is willing to give the suit back, but just wants a favor in return. Wants Clint to let Grills kill him via trial by combat in front of an audience. And the I like how the speech for Grills worked on Clint. Like he gets to say, you're a superhero every day. I don't get to do that. This is the closest I'll ever come to it. The fact that that actually worked on Clint, it's something he could have easily dismissed and be like, I don't care. Just give me the suit before I beat you up. That right. wasn't Clint Barton's response. His response was to actually have some sympathy for this guy and allow him to have this small victory in his life that, uh, as Clint even says, like, I fought Thanos. Well, Clint's had these amazing battles, although they haven't all been amazing. They've come at a heavy cost, as we've seen. But, uh, you know, whatever glory was there, this guy is not going to get anywhere close to that except for in this moment. And really, truthfully, Grills getting to win that trial by combat is probably more fulfilling than, uh, and, and probably he feels more glory than maybe Clint ever has in fighting these real battles that he's had with the Avengers and before that shield and wherever else. But Clint just going along with that plan for Grill's benefit is just Clint being a, a decent guy and doing someone a solid. And when we see the actual trial by combat, the, I don't know, MVP is, is a little bit of a strong term, but he just might be. Robert Walker uh, Branchode or Branchad, sorry if I butchered the name, if he just so happens to end up listening to this episode, plays a character called Orville, and you might recognize him if you go back and watch the trial by combat scene. He's the one who makes the comment about Clint not drinking the potion. He didn't drink the potion, and then he has this perfect <laughs> wince on his face. He's also the one who adds the cling, cling, cling sound, <laughs> sound effects to the sword fight. Just um, and has like the best reaction to Clint's death in the trial by combat. I loved that so much and how invested Precious Orville was in that trial by combat and the stakes uh, and recognizing the stakes immediately that uh, Clint Barton had not taken whatever potion he needed in order to better his chances in that trial by combat. And then, as I said, the interaction between Clint and Grills afterward of uh, Clint allowing Grills to call him by his first name and Clint saying he's glad he did it and he, because Clint, whether he's going to admit it or not, he loves those live action role players. He had an amazing time doing that. And really, how often does he just get to have fun? And I think it's great that this happens after that conversation with Kate Bishop, where he realizes that letting go of that self-seriousness for a bit and just having a little bit of honest to goodness, sincere fun and just enjoying that it can actually mean a lot and it can work wonders for you as I think this did for Clint Barton. This was something that I didn't know I ever needed, but I definitely glad I got it. And I love the slow motion. I feel like slow motion is, is kind of like a lost art a little bit, you know? And 
I loved how they shot this. It was perfect. And I thought it was done in a very respectful way for people, you know, for who do LARPing and take it very seriously. Right. And also having fun with it. I, I felt like it was a, a good combination of why people do it. And also, again, like just establishing the fact that what the what Jeremy has to or Jeremy, he's saying Jeremy, the actor, uh, Clint has to do. And, you know, what I think is very fascinating is, you know, I want to bring up this because we'll, I'll get, get to my idea of why I think this is an important thing going forward is why is he going all out of his way to get this suit? And, you know, obviously there's there's reasons he's, he's it's what it represents. But I want to bring up the fact that, like, why didn't he just let it just, you know, he went back to you tried to save it in the flames earlier. Right. Why didn't he just let it burn up? And I don't think it got, would burn up. Was that? I don't think it would burn up. I think that's why he knew. I think that's why he knew uh, they could leave it. It survived a bombing of Avengers Compound. It's not going to burn. I I just realized. Yeah, you know what? I just answered my question. There you go. Um, But what I, but that still doesn't change what I think. What it might be leading up to, and I think it's very interesting that you know what he what happens to it. I'd be very curious because it's not going to go to Kate. I'll get to that in a minute um, or a little bit later. But. I do find it very interesting that that's that is a, a uh, MacGuffin, if you will, in this series. Mm-hmm. The fact that costume is, you know, not just like it's cause it very easily could just wrote it out as like it gets burned up and, and the, you're, you're whatever. But it's it's in the series for a reason. And he have he's going having him go through such great lengths to get it back. And I just think there's there's a lot of interesting things with that. So I'm very, which I'll get to my my theory here at the end of the show, which maybe people have already talked about at some point, but we'll get there. But yeah, I just want to make I love the scene. I thought it's great. Um, I thought it was one of the better uh, things I think in all the TV series and maybe in MCU for comedic moments, but not done ridiculous. You know, as far as like it's way over the top. I thought it was appropriately done, like we like I said before. But uh, yeah, I, I, I thought that was a very much a a great, nice uh, light scene uh, for the MCU for us to to get. I think so, and I think it gave proper respect to live action role play. Yeah, I don't think it was absolutely. really making fun of anyone. It had fun with it, but that's part of it, right? Is to have fun with that, and exactly. uh, you know, even more so than like role models with. Uh, the MCU's own Paul Rudd and uh, Sean Oh my Williams gosh, Scott. I love role models. So you have that, like, I, I think it really was, in some ways it celebrated. I mean, you have an original Avenger who's been on, like, the greatest adventures we've seen in movies, and he's like, yeah, this was awesome. <laughs> so, or just, you know, somewhat begrudgingly admitting that he had fun doing this. So I think it really sold live-action role-play more so than anything mm. else. Uh, and yeah, as I said, Orville was, that's the guy who really... Who really sells live action role play? If more people start taking up live action role play after this episode, it's going to be because of Orville and all those cling sound effects. There is no doubt. But just make sure you take his advice and, and take that potion should you find yourself in a trial by combat. Meanwhile, uh, while that was happening, Kate did uh, get a call from a detective, Cottle. Kate tries to be evasive when she is called by uh, by Detective Cottle, but she's not super great at being evasive. And uh, she you know, happily punts the conversation to the following morning, or at least that's what the detective does after she says that she's at work and, and can't really talk. But I like those little moments where Kate Bishop is highly skilled, very capable, but she's not been in this world with these types of stakes. This is a first for her. And so I, I like that she 
initially wants to play it cool like i don't really know what's legal for you to ask me and or whatever like she might have something on it and whatever uh, with the conversation but then is quickly realizing that she's not in control of this conversation so it's just better to end it uh, i thought was a great moment but i'm sure we will get that follow-up with uh with detective coddle probably in the very next episode since you're talking about it being the very next day or the next morning uh clint then after his live action role play he calls home and he's already missing the construction of the gingerbread house. So remember, there were two other activities that his kids listed. Christmas movie marathon. Well, that was Nate's thing was the gingerbread house. Lila's activity was the Christmas movie marathon. Cooper's activity was the ugly sweaters. So Clint has missed one out of the three as we're counting down. I mean, I know there were some other things that he rattled off, but those were the main three that came from his kids. Uh, there's also five days left to get home and keep his promise to be home for Christmas and when Laura's asking him what's the play, after he explains that uh, he's involved with those dopes, the tracksuit mafia, Clint says he's going to go with a little catch and release. And she says one of Nat's old moves. And it was. We saw Nat use that in the Avengers. That was how we were first. I mean, she was introduced in Iron Man 2. But remember, she had allowed herself to be caught and get information in the first Avengers movie. So that is one of her old moves that Clint is borrowing for this catch and release, and was tied to a chair later in this episode, just as Natasha Romanoff was in The Avengers. So I appreciated that reference and the construction of that reference to keep, to stay true to it visually throughout this episode. And then we cut back to the Bishop home, where it's time for dinner and a sword fight. Kate does her best to get information out of Jack, and really she just wants to assess his sword skills and his fencing knowledge to find out if he's used a sword to kill Armand. She's not very subtle at uh, trying to get, get the information she's hinting at. Um, but uh, Kate establishes more of her credibility. She's not just good with a bow and arrow, not just good with her hands and her feet. Uh, she is a two-time two state champion in fencing. And Jack sees this as an opportunity for bonding, even though Eleanor does her best to discourage the match. And once again, Paul, I find myself kind of liking Jack. And... I really hope there's something redeemable about him because, yeah, he seems like a jerk right now, but it's also important to remember thus far, we've really only seen him through Kate's lens and she's biased, right? Like, I don't know if this is maybe having to do with her dad right. and, and, and feeling like her dad, not just she is being displaced, but is her dad being displaced? But I don't really think it's about that as much as far as just I can't stand that some other guy is going to marry my mom. I don't think it's really as simple as that. I just think she has a lot of complicated feelings about her mom. And this guy is taking those feelings and making them worse, whether that's really his fault or not, uh, isn't necessarily factoring into the whole process for Kate just yet. So I'm not, I'm not sold on this idea that he's absolutely the villain that he seems to be. And that tonally they're kind of leaning toward with him. He might be, but I also feel like that might be the least interesting version of this. I think it's going to be a more exciting story, potentially anyway, if Jack, who is the current number one murder suspect in the killing of Armand, I don't know if it's that interesting to have the most obvious suspect be the guy who did it. So, mm -hmm. um, Or if he did kill Armand, that maybe it wasn't necessarily murder. Maybe there was some other reason that he did it um, that would be morally or ethically at least a lot more justifiable than he just like killed the guy because he wanted to accelerate receiving his inheritance but uh yeah i i, I kind of like jack i know a lot of people don't but I, I feel like maybe we're 
maybe he's a lot more than he seems right now. I think the scene, I love the dinner scene. And again, I, but play off of what he had before, you don't really know what his angle is. Because you don't know if he loves his, if he really does love her mom. You don't know if he's trying to really bond with Kate. And the moment that they talked about fencing, I I was like, okay, I'm in. And I love the fact that he's like, well, I've dabbled a little bit. And that's this is when I was like, fencing. Okay, he's in a fence. And then as soon as they started fencing, I went, oh, okay, okay, I I get it now. He's swordsman. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just kind of clicked in the mirror for me. I love the fact that he is how they played that whole scene was perfect because she was pretty good and he lets her win. And he's like, it's almost again, maybe I'm reading too much into it. It's almost like he's testing her. Like it's not just bonding time, but he's testing her how much he can push her. Like, Oh, I let you win. And also to see how good she is. Cause if she can recognize the fact that he didn't like do, he didn't respond or whatever. She, she immediately called out that, no, you're, you're, you're not, something's wrong. And it's almost like he needs to know how much, how good she really is as far as like how, how good she is as a, as a fencer, but how, she, how she can read him and just read him in general. And if she can read, and once he kind of knows that he knows how to play it off later on, that's what it all felt like to me. And to the point where, you know, he's, Oh no, you won, you won. Ha ha. Like, I felt like all that was just, it was all kind of leading him to try to figure out where is she exactly I was brilliant. That's how I read into it. And then I loved how when she went to tackle behind his back and he just, he just yeah. oh my God. I was, oh, oh God. So good. And that's when I went, okay, I love Jack. I, I don't think he, I don't think he is the bad guy. I don't think he's going to be a good guy. I think he right. is using his, her mom. And, but for what reasons, I like your idea of Val but something along those lines, there's something there that is uh, that he's hiding that, that there is a double a, some kind of double cross going on yeah. and, or double double cross. I feel like it's going to happen. And all that that whole scene was set up perfectly. And it sets up the idea that he's not exactly who he seems to, on multiple levels. And I love that. Right. And I think that when you talk about maybe Jack wanting to get something out of this relationship with Eleanor, I think Eleanor is trying to get something out of her relationship with Jack as well. I I think that's part of where, remember Armand didn't trust Eleanor. And while Kate has the perspective of it's Jack who is the one kind of being the corrupting influence on my mom, Armand's idea, his point of view was Eleanor is the corrupting influence on Jack. She's not as amazing as he thinks she is and, and whatever else. And so, and I think that shows, right? That's bias. Kate is going to, despite, regardless of whatever problems there are in the relationship between Kate and her mom, that's still her mom. And so she's going to have a more favorable opinion of her mom than this guy she doesn't know. Meanwhile, from Armand's perspective, that's still his nephew with Jack. So he's going to have more trust in Jack than Eleanor. So I, I think that's where you see these different perspectives, but you understand the reasons why and how it, you're not dealing with an unbiased perspective in either respect. So you can't really take either one as being the sound judgment of who these people are and what good or harm they might be doing. We still have to un- uncover that. As far as what's going on with Jack here, I think he was testing Kate. I also think that he was just being 
evasive, still not wanting to let on with exactly who he is and, and what he's about. So this is all part of preserving the mystery, as he even admits because he has to, that he downplayed his skill and was continuing to lie about that until he was forced to parry to defend himself. But it also speaks to Kate's skill level as well, that she's not only good enough to be a two-time state champion, she's good enough to know when someone's letting her win, as opposed to just taking the win and being excited about it, knowing that this isn't something, and they don't spell it out, and they don't need to. I don't know all the finer points uh, of, I don't know what's technically sound and isn't in fencing, and most viewers wouldn't. So they don't need to have her explain, here's how I know he's a fake. But she is recognizing that he's, I'm guessing anyway, that she recognizes this because she probably knows that these are moves you don't make. These are mistakes that you don't make, even if you only dabble in fencing, even if you only consider yourself a fan of fencing, that you might know better than this. I can tell you're better than this. I can tell you're letting me win, which is just another way of lying. So it just makes me right to not trust you, as Kate obviously doesn't trust Jack. But the character that maybe shouldn't be trusted just yet, even though she's mom and she cares about her daughter, Eleanor is the one who's cautioning Kate against doing any more snooping. Always beware the character who's telling anyone else not to ask questions, not to investigate further. And I know that Eleanor can sell that as it's a mom who's worried about the well-being of her daughter, especially her daughter's physical safety, and that's perfectly valid. But I also feel like maybe there's uh, there's more to that for Eleanor Bishop. I, I don't necessarily think that Eleanor has everyone's best interests in mind. She may think she does in trying to justify that, but I think Eleanor is definitely up to something, and she also has to be, since uh, you know, on the night that Armand was killed, we saw her arguing with him. We do have to uh, put Eleanor uh, firmly on that list of suspects in the murder of Armand the Third. So, uh, meanwhile, uh, I like how Jack recovers, like after this, uh, after changing from this whole fencing thing. How Jack recovers with a dad joke about whether or not Kate's old enough to drink when they're talking about Molotov cocktails. Just, I mean, that guy did a good job. He he learned a lot when he read that stepdad book. I mean, he just became an mm -hmm. expert in all things. In, uh, in young adult psychoanalysis and also dad jokes. Yes. So well done, well read, Jack Duquesne. <laughs> and uh, when she's saying, uh, when Kate has to apologize, like the sorry for scaring you into telling the truth and him coming back with smart as a whip um, and saying that she's not the first one who's tried to take his head off is maybe alluding to other things that have happened for mm. Jack Duquesne in his past. I think that's literally true. Uh, not just, I don't think Jack is being entirely figurative there. And also Jack... Maybe trolling Kate by offering a monogrammed butterscotch. Now, I know you say this, you, you see this, and you say, he's got a monogrammed butterscotch. That means he was there and he killed Armand. Not necessarily. I mean, that's his uncle's place. He's probably been there a bunch of times and grabbed pockets full of those uh, and he loves monogrammed butterscotch. Like, I would. So, I, yeah. I, I look, I, I like butterscotch, so I would totally do that. And I, I think Jack Duquesne might do the same thing. I don't think that necessarily makes him a murderer, but he did kind of have a look on his face when he was handing it to Kate. So I don't know that he killed Armand, but I think he know he might have been there when Armand was killed, or he might have been there when Kate discovered Armand and just was hiding somewhere else. He had maybe made his own discovery in Hid, and maybe he knows what Kate saw and that she was there and that's why he's trying to provoke this reaction. Maybe he's trying to provoke a reaction to see if Kate is the one who killed Armand. That might be mm. what's going on. Maybe he showed up after Kate did and thinks that it was her. 
and thinks that it, and suspects that it was her because he did kind of make a face after Kate saved him and Armand and spoke while wearing the Ronin costume. Like maybe he recognized the voice a little bit or maybe he's come to realize that that, that was probably her uh, in the wine cellar during the black market auction. So I, I wouldn't just say the uh, the butterscotch makes him a, a murderer. Lots of people like butterscotch, whether it's monogrammed or not. Um, yes. Then we cut to the catch, but no release. Clint gets himself caught by the tracksuit mafia. Uh, we again have Ivan Banyonas, played by Alex uh, Ponovic. That's the one with the more handlebar mustache. Then you have the bald guy, uh, Tomas Delgado, played by uh, Piotr Adamchek. And we hear a comment uh, referring to she, she wants him alive. There is a line that maybe you didn't hear. I, I hope you did, and I hope you laughed at it as much as I did, everyone listening to this, and, and Paul, you as well. If mm-hmm. not, go back and listen to it. There's a line from Clint Barton where he says, guys, I can see through the bag after they black bag him uh, as they're putting him in oh, the van. Yes. yes, that was amazing. I was cracking up. I crack up a lot watching this show. It's very, very funny. It, it's very funny, yes. Yeah. And uh, Kate can't reach Clint on the phone. Uh, somebody picks up, and it's a menacing answer. And she uses her Bishop security login, that's handy, to track Clint Barton's phone, uh, which kind of makes you wonder what else Bishop security can track, right? And what Mm. people may be up to and schemes that are going on. And certainly there is someone who traffics in information, Don't Call Her Val. So maybe the connection (laughs) is between Don't Call Her Val and Eleanor Bishop. Or maybe it's between Don't Call Her Val and Jack Duquesne. Maybe it's Don't Call Her Val and literally everyone because she traffics in information. Uh, I thought all of that was great. And then when we see the tracksuit mafia, the whole wakey, wakey bro uh, was great. <laughs> and the back and forth when the guy got so mad that Clint was uh, dogging the warehouse, when he was criticized, like, don't, I, I know you kid, don't kid, okay? He's criticizing. Just them losing it over uh, criticisms of their hideout uh, was mm-hmm. fantastic. I, I love it. Yeah, this was, this was great because, again, I go back to Clint was always in control. And, you know, he, he wants to get to the bottom of what's going on because obviously these the tracksuit mafia wanted the Ronin suit and he wants to know what the reason is for. And I really like the idea that, you know, before he can sit back with his family, because we already know he's got a, he's going to develop a relationship with Kate Bishop. What's the, the main reason that's keeping him there at this moment right now? And that's, again, the suit. But why? What is what is signifying the suit and what does that mean and what it leads to? And I love the fact that he's just, you know, he just wants to he wanted to get caught. He wanted to get, you know, figured out so he can get in front of these idiots and get in front in, in front of who is ever in charge of them. And that to me is what really was like, OK, like what, what's let's get there. And it was very interesting what we got, Sean. It was really interesting. And when we see like Kate Bishop trying to save the day and just crashing through the party and just falling to the floor was great. And this was as Clint was trying to speak to the manager, like wondering if it was Kazi Frothy, who we see off to the side, but that's not the leader that we're talking about. It's not the one that we will see uh, in a few moments. But when Kate Bishop crashes through, and also them talking to Clint about her, like Kate Bishop is guy, bro. I I thought that same guy, like he just, when he says, bro, I found her was amazing. That was so good. Like, he actually did something. Like, he accomplished something, even though she pretty much literally just fell <laughs> into their lap. I, that was, I don't know. It, it sometimes, this, this was just too much. I, I, I adore the tracksuit mafia. They are, they are so much fun. Um, and even Kate's, uh, comeback of, oh, wow, I didn't realize we were supposed to bring guns. 
Um, but even the <laughs> even funnier than that still for me was probably the look on Clint's face. Like his head just sinks when Kate falls through because he knows that she's out there and maybe has a chance to be like his his hope of escape or be part of the catch and release plan. Or maybe he doesn't need her at all. More likely, he probably doesn't feel like he needs her at all. It's just like, why did she put herself in this position? Like, I'm mm-hmm. fine. Why is she doing this? Like, I, I'm part of the, a whole part of the reason I'm here. I mean, the main reason I'm still here is to make sure that she's okay. And she's just thrown herself right into the line of fire. Uh, and also, Kate, like, just Kate reacting to the pain of her fall before she even notices the trouble she's in. Like, just the. The whole owl thing. It's very real. It's very human in, in the way that yes. she responds to it. And tonally, it's just perfect. And scenes like this are what really, I think, match the spirit of the Matt Fraction run in Hawkeye and the, yes. the hilarity of it. So, so good. And then to the point where they're like getting duct taped to like whatever those little coin-operated kitty rides are with like the little unicorn or whatever it is that Clint Barton is taped to and Kate's taped to another one. Uh, before we meet uh, another character at the very end of this episode. This was just, I mean, it was one after the other of, of all the things that were making me laugh in this. Yeah, this was a great moment when, again, you're emphasizing the fact that she's just, you're again, the little things of, about the show, Kate Bishop comes down and he realizes now she's not just going to go through one time and then never come back. Like she's, she's legit. Like, She's going to keep doing this, whether he's involved or not. And that, I think, is also always like, no, this means I have to figure this out. I can't. Like, again, the whole idea that, you know, he tries to play that he doesn't care about her, but he does. This only to me, this signifies to him like, crap, I am like this. This girl is not get it. And this is not a good thing. And establishing that right there. I mean, he already kind of knew that, but this solidifies it. We're like, OK. I am I am attached to this girl. This is not good. I love that whole thing. And her response is great as well. Yeah, it really is. It's it's so on point and so much fun and so funny. And then the last thing that we get to do in this episode is we get to meet Echo. So Clint mm. has been asking for the manager. Yvonne goes to tell her that they have them both. And we see that he is uh, very demonstrative with his mouth movement to make sure that Echo can read his lips. And Echo, also known as Maya Lopez, as played by Alakwa Cox, who already has her own Disney Plus series that's been announced, uh, makes her debut at the very end of this episode. She shoes Yvonne away, and then she's we see her before and after kind of feeling the bass from the speakers. And then we cut to our very Christmassy title sequence uh, before the rest of the credits for this episode. Love that introduction. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. Leaves you wondering who this person is and what their whole deal is and how they fit into this entire episode. If this is the person who ordered the watch, what do they want with said watch? What do they want with Clint Barton and Kate Bishop? What's the history that this person has with Ronan? Because there's obviously beef there. And uh, the connection between this person with the tracksuit mafia has this person always been affiliated with the tracksuit mafia, even when Ronan was attacking them? Or is this a more recent affiliation? Lots of questions about this character. This is a character who, um, well, Paul, I, I know you're going to say it, so I'll save it for you uh, as mm-hmm. far as other Ronan things going on with this character. Mm-hmm. Lots of questions, lots of directions that this can go. But just as a character introduction, I really like this. The music was 
mm-hmm. kind of like haunting and creepy clown type music. So, I mean, we've been talking about Fra Fee as Kazi, who is also known as Clown in the comics, and that's not necessarily the music that he's been given. It's really more reserved for Echo here. Not that it's like definitively clown, but it, was, it seemed kind of clown-esque to me, but also had that bass that, uh, I don't know, I liked the music. It was creepy, it was yeah. haunting, and it's certainly very uh, intimidating music as we're meeting this brand new character who maybe is a villain, and I, and I really do have to emphasize maybe, because we are she is getting her own Disney Plus series. There's a lot going on here, and as far as the, the MCU, like as this, this episode in this series and why she wants a Ronin outfit, I, I can assume that maybe Ronin killed one, someone that's close to her, something along those lines, or something something that she has like a you know vindictive. Uh, she wants to get back at Ronin for, and she wants to use it for some other reason. Now, for those who don't know, I will tell you right now that that echo in the comic books, she does don the Ronin costume at one point. And that's actually funny enough. That's when I got back into comic books. Sean was in the new Avengers breakout comic books. Um, or in that whole like first year, I should say, cause she shows up later on after the initial arc. So I got back into comic books and I, I started seeing this Ronin character. I'm like, I have no idea who the hell this character is. And, um, it was originally going to be, it was re- supposed to be daredevil. And then everyone figured it out. So Brian Bettis is like, "Crap! What do I need to figure? I need to like not have it be Daredevil because everyone's figured it out." So he made it have it be um, Echo. So Echo ended up being an Avenger, which is a lot more interesting to be quite honest, because Daredevil has no business being an Avenger, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. Um, all that said, I do think that the Echo series and this Ronin costume will play a part. I think like, she, I think she will don this costume. As an not an Avenger, maybe, but in, in the in her own show, she will use this to to um and be, label he'll be Echo, but he'll be, she'll be donning that costume at some point. And I think that's why it exists right now. I think that's why it's it's kind of being like the MacGuffin of the series is that it eventually will go to Echo because she'll have some kind of tie to it and it'll, she'll make it her own. Um, and I'm not sure she'll have it the whole time, but she'll definitely use it for some reason or, or one reason or another. And I do find that find that very interesting. And uh, again, the whole idea that you're, you're emphasizing that she's a deaf character, um, the idea that you know she's reading the lips, and again, she's feeling the bass. And that's something I always thought was really cool. That um, you know, people who are deaf love you know heavy bass, you know, centered music because of that reason. They can feel the vibrations. I'll never forget um, my friend telling me um, some deaf uh, punk rockers that he knew, um, and they loved the the bass lines because the bass. If you if you know if you're familiar with uh, punk music at all. You know, it's all driving, but the bass is, you know, very heavily um, can be very interesting a lot of times you know, as far as like, you know, what you're doing as a bass player myself. I could definitely understand and gravitate towards that. Um, uh, unlike a lot of other rock music, it's very driving and very heavily emphasized and everything. So anyway, I like that. That was really, really cool. Um, and you kind of you automatically know that there's something different about this character. And as again, as someone who likes the character in the comic books, I'm very interested to see where they take this and where she comes from. Cause I, I don't know much about her past necessarily. I know she was introduced in daredevil comic books. I know she was kind of like an, uh, a villainish character, anti-hero kind of a little bit at first, and then kind of turned into a more of an established, a hero character. And I'm very interested to see her journey. Cause obviously with this, we already know she's getting a Disney plus show. Where is this journey going? How does it tie into, um, you know, with, Obviously, with Yolanda, who's going to be showing up, the, the new Black Widow, 
you know, with Val, what does this all mean exactly? And, you know, and just and honestly, Sean, and again, I don't, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but what, who exactly is the bad guy? Like we, like we're, we're it's getting a like good these question ma- right now. I like, don't know. Like, yeah, right. And that's the thing. We, we know that there's the swordsman Jack character that we think is someone involved. We got the tracksuit mafia. That's also got echo now, but we know Echo's not a, really going to be a bad guy. So who the hell is the bad guy? Is this, it's Mephisto done. <laughs> we don't have to do it anymore. It's Mephisto. Um, there no, we go. in all seriousness, it, it does, and I don't want to get too much into rumors, but it definitely at least makes me think, who, what exactly is going on here? Because there's a lot of like red herrings, and there's a lot of people who are supposed to think it's a villain, as if you're a mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. But we're not the mainstream audience. We're the, we're the diehards. We know they're not really going to be the bad guys. So who exactly is it? It's a really good question right now at this point in the series, and shockingly, because it just dropped. We're a third of the way through the show. Right. We've yeah, seen exactly. two out of six episodes, but that's OK. I mean, the villain doesn't have to be identified. We didn't even see he who, uh, he who remains until the last episode of Loki. And sure, we were sure. we went into the last episode, like hoping that it wasn't just going to be another version of Loki waiting in the Citadel uh. at the end of time. Like we were like, oh, are we going to get a, a proper villain? And we did. And we did. so with this one. There are definitely people they're pointing us in the direction of Jack Duquesne. I don't think they're pointing us as firmly in that direction, but they're certainly giving us at least some reason to question Eleanor Bishop. And then we know we know the tracksuit mafia are villains, but they don't necessarily seem to be in charge. But you do have Fra Fee's Kazi, who I think could ultimately emerge as the villain. Like, let's say, for example, that Maya Lopez or Echo ends up siding with Clint Barton and Kate Bishop. Well, you could have uh, Kazi as a member of the tracksuit mafia, de facto leader of the, of the tracksuit mafia saying, I'm not cool with that. I'm not forgiving them. We have, we still have beef and takes over as the Mm. antagonist that could still very much be part of it. I, I think that what's exciting though, about this idea of not necessarily having a clear cut antagonist, at least not yet is you can argue that our the hero this series is named after, meaning he's already got that title, Clint Barton Hawkeye, he's not as definitively a hero yet either. There's a whole side of him and things he did that he has hidden from the world, that he has hidden from the public. And I think that's why the suit is still around. You could have just written it off as being burned in, uh, destroyed in Avengers Compound, and not and but why why bring it back? And I think it's to make Clint Barton go through something. Like right now, the motivation is pretty simple. The motivation for Clint Barton is, as was demonstrated here, that this suit is dangerous because if somebody wears it, they become a target. Kate Bishop became a target. If Grills had worn the suit long enough, he would have become a target. And so Clint knows he can't leave that suit just lying around because somebody will take it and put it on. And they will either do harm themselves or be harmed or both. And Clint's trying to prevent that. So that's the initial motivation with this. But I think what he'll discover throughout this is this is part of his past that he hasn't reconciled. And I talked about parallels to Black Widow and her own movie. And I feel like that's Clint Barton right now. When you go to that conversation on Vormir and Natasha is talking about how, uh, you know, not judging people by their worst mistakes. And, and that was the conversation that Clinton and Natasha were having with each other. And, you know, Natasha is saying, or 
uh, Natasha was saying you didn't like he Clint did not judge her by her worst mistakes, but she still needed to go back and resolve those lingering issues within herself regarding her worst mistakes. And that was her part of a huge part of her story in Black Widow. Well, Clint is still living with his worst mistakes, and he hasn't really resolved those things. He hasn't really faced those things. And now because this suit has resurfaced, he's being put in that position. That may not necessarily be his goal right here and right now, but I think eventually he does have to reconcile that part of his past. And then if he can move forward as a, as a hero, as, some, as an inspiring figure for others, um, you know, as Kate Bishop is hinting at in the conversation that they had earlier in this episode. So I feel like that's the emotional arc for Clint Barton as far as what that means for everybody else and how they're going to test that. For a character like Echo, will she eventually don the suit? Maybe, but she didn't... When If the Tracksuit Mafia was, high, was working for her when they crashed the black market auction, they weren't even after the Ronin suit. They weren't even after the Ronin sword. They wanted the watch and everything else was secondary. So... If we think that that's not necessarily what the what the motivation was, then I don't know that Echo is going to wear the Ronin suit. I mean, if she wanted to do that, it seems like she would have assigned the tracksuit mafia to acquiring that for her well, not in now. the first place. But eventually, yeah, she could end up wearing it. Yes. But as far as how she fits into this, one of two things has happened. Either she knows someone who was killed and she wants to avenge right. them using the Ronin suit. So that way she gets away with it. So people think it's the original Ronin who did it. Um, Cause I know in the comic books, her dad was killed by Kingpin. Maybe Kingpin will show up in this series and you know, oh boy. <laughs> as has been rumored, but who knows where that's at, but setting rumors aside and just looking at what we have here and now, I don't really know that I would go that route because man, that's such a weird revelation because there's no investment in that for the audience. What the audience has yes. an investment in right now is Clint Barton and what he's done. And when we talk about people's past coming back to haunt them, Clint Barton killed a lot of people. And it's really not hard to envision one of those people that Ronan killed being someone that Maya Lopez, AKA Echo knew and loved and cared about that. You know, she wants some sort of revenge on Clint Barton or on Ronan uh, and Clint Barton has been getting in the way of that because she doesn't know that Clint Barton is Ronan. So maybe that's what's going on here. And eventually she will learn that there were other bad things in play and it wasn't necessarily Clint Barton if that's if it didn't have to do with Ronan killing somebody and, and it's more complicated than that. And she ultimately decides that Clint, and maybe that's the the forgiveness that Clint gets is somebody he killed, um, you know, their loved one forgiving him for that or whatever it may be. And I, I realize I'm totally rambling and spiraling and spiraling here. So to bring it back to this point, yeah, I feel like we're going to get some sort of turn eventually with Maya Lopez slash echo in this that sets up her Disney plus series. It's not to say you can't have a series dedicated to a villain, but that's not who this character is strictly speaking in the comic books. And so I think there's going to be an evolution over the course of this series that sets up the Disney plus series with Jack Duquesne. As I said, it doesn't seem he almost feels too obvious of a suspect to be the guy who's done it and who's behind all the bad things in this series. Uh, Eleanor Bishop seems a little bit more likely to me, but I don't know. And it could be other antagonists who emerge over the course of it. And really what you have is this chaotic set of circumstances with so many players involved and even more who could jump into it. As you mentioned, you have Yelena Belova, who's going to jump into this at some point, presumably, and that's going to make things even more complicated 
And it's all just things that get in the way of Clint Barton, him trying to make it home for Christmas. Uh, and of course, Kate Bishop and her trying to keep herself safe and also keep her mom safe, you know, protecting herself and her mom as she said she wanted, she vowed to do way back at her father's funeral, unless she finds out that maybe her mom isn't necessarily uh, worth protecting. But that would be very, very dark. Even if Eleanor's doing bad things, I feel like Kate yes. would still want to save her. Um, maybe just save her soul, not just save her life. But lots of things going mm. on. And I love it. I, I love being two episodes yes. in, being totally intrigued and not knowing exactly where things are going to end up from here. I just know that this series so far is working on multiple levels. I, I feel like it's drawing parallels to interesting character journeys throughout the MCU, including Clint and his dearly departed best friend, Natasha. There are meta elements, as I discussed, the MCU and its own relationship with the audience and with itself, as well as you know the, the journeys for these two main characters, Kate Bishop, uh, as we've talked about, and, and Clint Barton, and everything that he's going through and will go through. And it's all wrapped up in this very seemingly light, very fun, very funny, charming holiday story of a guy trying to get home to his family for Christmas after probably missing a lot of Christmases with that family. I just, I love it so much. And I'm glad that, you know, by virtue of us waiting until Sunday to record these spoiler reviews, we don't have that much longer to wait until we get a third episode. Yeah, that, that is the one nice thing about Wednesdays. You know, I, I, I've told people on the Saga Continues show, uh, Sean, that with Marvel, Marvel stuff, I'll watch Wednesdays. And mainly because we, we were such a fast turnaround. We, I gotta get these in sooner, but with the star Wars stuff, I'm waiting till Friday. I have, I have like married to Fridays and I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to save all that stuff. I'm going to get off social media, go to Fridays. But yeah, for Marvel, it's just, it's easier for me. And yeah, I, I can't wait to watch the next episode. I'm like, I'm really, really excited to watch this uh, third episode. I'm very excited for that, and I, I do still wish, though, I, I would trade Wednesdays for, for Fridays in a heartbeat. I would love to go yes. back to Fridays being the new episode drop day for Disney+, Plus, but it's just not going to happen. It's been several months, and you know, just have to accept it. And I have, and we move forward. So excited for Wednesday. Yes. Wish it would wait till Friday, but we'll get a new episode on Wednesday. Can't wait to see it. So uh, this series off to a great start, and, and holy crap, we'll be halfway through it after we get through uh, this Wednesday. It's just uh, amazing. But I, I think we'll know we'll know a lot more, but uh, certainly we won't come close to knowing it all by the end of this uh, third episode. I think there's going to be plenty of surprises in store, and uh, we're here to talk about them on these spoiler reviews, so make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, and follow us in those places you can, at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. Check out Fan Show Plus at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber or on Apple Podcasts. Just search Fan Show Plus or MCU fan, the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe for to receive those premium podcasts of Fan Show Plus, where there will eventually be some Book of Boba Fett uh, spoiler reviews uh, for that, as well as additional MCU news and all the other things that we cover over there. Paul, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Herman22 with two uh, N's, a.k.a. P-Thug. Please follow my Comic Binge YouTube channel, uh, or subscribe to it, I should say. And also, please go over to Webtoons and look at my new web comics, uh, Space Demons. Uh, just type in Space Demons. You should be able to see it right away. Um, part 1 just dropped a few weeks ago. Hope to get Part 2 done at least at the end of the year or at the beginning of the new year. But either way, check us out there and lots of cool comic book stuff coming in next year. And also, please follow my Star Wars podcast the saga continues and also make sure you're checking out herman's hearty slice uh, make sure you, you <laughs> go that for your next pizza order yes and if you want to follow me you can do so on twitter and instagram at mr sean gerber so for paul i'm sean 
Thanks for listening to two episodes this week. We'll see you soon.